In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue our study in the book of First Kings. Um, last week we covered uh, chapter 17 and parts of chapter 18. Um, God willing, today we're going to just start from the beginning of chapter 18 just so we have the whole chapter um, and then try to go through um, to the end and to chapter 19 as well. Um, does someone remember what were some of the major events that we talked about last week? We met uh, a famous character in the Bible, Elijah, okay? And how did the beginning of the min ministry of Elijah, what, did it, what happened in the beginning of his ministry? Before, before that, before raising the widow's son, what was the first thing that he did? He asked her for food. Before that. Before the drought. So so what did he do? He went to who? Ahab, remember? So King Ahab is now the king um, of Israel. He went to King Ahab, and God is rebuking the king and rebuking the people for their idol worship, and so he's going to send a drought. So Elijah was very bold, and this is one of the themes that we see um, in the life of Elijah. He's very bold. He goes up to the king. Um, he confronts him, and he tells him there's going to be a drought until I say so. Okay? And then he departs. Right? He disappears. And no one can find him for years. Okay? Um, so there's a drought. And how is it that Elijah is surviving during the drought? Hmm? Crows? <laughs> yeah. So birds are coming, yes. Uh, ravens, right? Ravens. Ravens are coming. Can you put that on my um, Ravens are coming uh, to feed uh, Elijah. And he's also living by a brook so he's drinking from the water of the brook okay but then what happens no this one is okay um so when the brook dries up what, where, where does he go where does god tell him to go To the widow, and she lives where? S speak up, I can't hear you. Hmm? Middle of nowhere, which has a name. We don't remember. No, the widow of Nain is a, is in the New Testament. That's a different name. That's a different. So in, okay, in Sidon, in a region called Zarephath, because she's the widow who lives in Zarephath, which is in Sidon. Okay, which is um, in, in, in Lebanon, north of Israel. Okay, um, and, and we mentioned how the Lord mentioned this woman um, when he was rebuking the, the Israelites in the New Testament. Um, and and he, he's, saying, he's saying that um, Elijah was sent to this woman who was not even an Israelite, was not leaving, living in Israel, um, and did not go to any of the widows or any of the, the people who were in Israel. Um, so he went there to the widow, and he miraculously allowed them to continue eating by multiplying the flour and the oil so they could, they could survive. Um, and then we spoke about how her son died and how he uh, laid on top of him um, as like a figure of the cross and of the resurrection of Christ and raised him up to life um, again. Okay. Then at the end, um, after a period of three years, a little over three years, um, Ahab is then coming back. Or sorry, Elijah is now coming back to speak with Ahab, okay? And um, I think we're going to read uh, this part again, the part that we kind of covered toward the end last time. Um, again, as an overview, this is our famous graph here, if you guys can see it, of the kings, okay? So all, all of what we're speaking right now is on the right column under where it says Ahab in orange. This is the, the focus of where, where we are right now. Um, prior to this, we spoke about all these other names and all these other kings. Um, right now, we're, we're in that part right there. Okay. Any questions so far before we continue? Okay. And it came to pass, this is the part we, we read last time. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. 
Okay, so remember Samaria is now the new capital of Israel, okay? And there's a lot of parallel here to when um, God uh, had spoken to Moses and he told him to go speak to Pharaoh. So here also um, the, the prophet Elijah is going to speak to the king. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Um, so again, Obadiah is a, a faithful servant of God who is living in the house um, of Ahab. Uh, Jezebel is the evil queen. Um, she is a priestess, Sidonian priestess that married King Ahab. Um, and so she is the one trying to completely root out all um, worship of God. Okay, and so she's seeking out these prophets um, to, to kill them, whereas Obadiah secretly is like protecting them um, and feeding them. And so one of the themes that we get, and actually we'll speak about this a little bit more later on, but one of the themes that we see is that no matter how bad things get, there is always faithful people. Right? There's always going to be some faithful people, even if they're, they don't have the loudest voice. Um, they're not the most prominent. They're not the most seen. We might not even know who they are. Um, but there's always to be faithful people. And later on, when Elijah is convinced that he is the only one left who is faithful to God, um, the Lord reminds him that, no, there are others. Right? There are others. So maybe also this is um, an example to us in that sometimes we feel like we are like the minority who is left in the world who, who truly believes in God, who is left in the world, we see everything kind of going in the wrong direction, and yet God is reminding us that there are still faithful people and there are still people out there who believe in him. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks, perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So the drought is affecting all the animals. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on, the, on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master Elijah is here. So he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the, into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. So he's saying, if I go back um, without you with me, um, he will kill me. For me to tell him that I found you, but then I didn't bring you with me, he would kill me. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did with Jeze when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives... Before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So he's saying, go, and I promise that I'm going to come and meet him myself. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Okay, so like uh, Ahab sees that Elijah is the one who is behind all of the calamity. Right. He's the one behind all of what's happening. Right. The drought the, for the three years, the animals are dying, the people are starving, um, the famine, all of this. Whose fault is it? Ahab sees that it's Elijah's fault. OK. Whereas actually, whose fault is it? It's Ahab's fault and Jezebel's fault and the people's fault for the way that they are living. So here he is placing blame because it's very easy for us to place blame. We try to find someone to blame because we don't want to take responsibility for our own actions, right? Here, he doesn't want to take responsibility. And even though he sees very clearly that the drought is coming because Elijah said that it would, he is at this time not considering at all that he needs to change, right? That he needs to change his beliefs, that he needs to change his actions, that he needs to expel all of these idol worshipers from the kingdom, that he needs to destroy 
all of these high places and all these temples and uh, like that he needs to leave Jezebel, right? Because she's not good. Um, he doesn't consider that his role is the one, his, his, it in his hand is everything, right? In his hand is everything. He's, 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 he's thinking that there is something out of his control that is causing the calamities where actually he is the one causing the calamities and 100% of the change that needs to happen is from him. So he has all the control in the world, the control to end the drought, the control to change everything, but he is not choosing to do it. He doesn't want to, to do it. And so here he is referring to Elijah as the one who is the troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. So here we see that Elijah is calling for all of the pagan priests, the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah. So if you remember, I think back when we were speaking earlier, we spoke about Baal. He's like the, the male god and Asherah is the female god. Um, uh, and, 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 and they have their separate priests, okay? And so he's calling all of these priests to, to come and, and to go to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was a place that was seen by the pagans as being like a dwelling place of their gods. So one thing we're going to see now is Elijah, his goal here is to prove to them that God is the true God and that the gods that they are worshiping are not gods at all. So in order to do that, he's going to stack the deck against himself. Right, And everything that he's going to do here and this proof that he's going to make to prove that God is real, he's going to make it impossible for anyone to claim that he cheated, impossible for anyone to claim that he manipulated the situation in any way, but actually he's going to make it so that everyone would look and see there is no possible conclusion um, from what he's about to do other than the fact that God is real. Okay, so the first thing he did is he picked Mount Carmel, which is a place which is supposed to be like the dwelling place of the pagan gods. Okay, so he went there. He says, this is where we're going to go. Okay, and here he is presenting a very simple argument. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Right? He's saying that what we are trying to do and what is religion really, it is the belief in the truth. And the truth is an objective reality. Just like we have objective beliefs about things that are in the world and that we can test them and we can say, is this true or is it not true? There is no value or benefit in claiming to believe in something that is not true, right? And we don't invent beliefs about the world around us simply to make ourselves feel good, right? Like let's say I wish that it was a rainy day, right? We don't claim that it's a rainy day. We don't, we don't walk around trying to convince ourselves that it's a rainy day, right? Or the opposite. We wish that it was a sunny day, but it's raining outside, right? As much as we wish that it was sunny, right? We don't try to delude ourselves into imagining that it actually is sunny. We have to accept the, the, the reality as it is. And anyone who tries to believe contrary to the reality will not find um, comfort in that, will not find fulfillment. The, the, the truth is going to keep nagging at you to remind you that what you are believing is a delusion. Okay, And so here what Elijah is saying is, I am not telling you to believe in God simply because I am a prophet. I'm claiming to come from God. I'm not telling you to believe in him because it's convenient for me to believe in him. I'm not telling you to believe for political reasons. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not telling you to believe because it's, it's like, like it, would, it would be good for me somehow if people believe or that I want to have a prominent position as a prophet. No, he is saying, let's examine the truth. If God is the real God, then all people should agree to believe. If Baal is the true God, then all people should agree to believe. Because the only reason we believe in God is not because we've been programmed or indoctrinated into some kind of religion. The reason we believe in him is because we believe that he is real, right? He is real, that he really exists, that he, he, he lives uh, as, as a person, 
right? Who is omniscient and omnipresent and dwells in heaven and all these things that we say that we believe in. We don't do those things because what? We, it makes us feel good, right? We do those things because we believe they are true. There are actually many statements about Christianity that don't make us feel good, right? For instance, when we read about the condemnation of sinners and the existence of hell, does this make anyone feel good? Like, like as Christians, like are we happy with this? Like when we read about the judgment of God, it actually brings fear, makes us wonder, like, is this, it's like I'm worried. Like, like I don't, I'm, I'm not happy that there exists such a place, right? I'm not happy that God can send a person to such a place, right? So, so, so the statements that Christians are making are not statements that are just there to make us feel good about ourselves or our status. We are saying we believe in there being an objective reality, and we are claiming that we know what it is, and, and this is what we are saying. This is what we are preaching to the world. Now, someone might come and disagree with us and say, no, I don't believe that what you believe in is true. But we are still discussing an objective truth, whether it is true or whether it is false. And this is exactly what Elijah is saying here. He's saying either this is true or false. Live your life according to the objective truth. But what, uh, what Ahab is doing is he sees clearly there is evidence for the existence of God. How else did this drought come about, right? He's seeing evidence for the existence of God, but he is trying to ignore it. He says, no, it's more comfortable for me. It's easier for me. It's better for me to live my life as though God did not exist, right? And so that is the life that I pursue. And now you have this like discord between what we, um, the way we act and, 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 and the evidence, the evidence is leading us in a different direction, but I'm rejecting that evidence, right? Um, C.S. Lewis, he said, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap as w and wishful thinking to begin and in the end despair. He's saying the role of religion is not to be comfortable, is not to find comfort. We're, we're not trying to, to find the, the belief system that makes us comfortable. This is like the postmodern religion, the postmodern religious systems that exist now, even amongst Christians, is we, we are just going to focus on the things that make us comfortable. So even in Christianity, say, you know, there's certain verses I don't want to read. There are certain concepts I don't want to think about. And I want to convince myself that God could never do such a thing even though we see it very clearly that maybe God is condemning sinners. No, but I don't want to believe it. I want to focus only on the mercy of God, the goodness of God, and all those things, right? Without having a full picture, a full understanding of wh who God really is and what wh the way he, he practices and what he said about himself, right? So what C.S. Lewis is saying is religion is not about seeking comfort. It is about seeking truth, okay? And if you find the truth, you might find comfort. Right, Because in the end, the God who actually exists and lives is a God of comfort. So when we believe in him, we will receive comfort, yes. But my, my, my reason for seeking him is not the comfort, it's the truth. I want to believe in what is true. Um, St. James also makes it clear that the way that we behave right, um, should be based on what we believe to be true. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So if a person is getting ready for a job interview and they wake up in the morning and they don't get ready at all, they look at themselves in the mirror and they're a mess, right? They, 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 they're not presentable in any way, but they don't have time to get ready. So they decide that they look good. They, they decide for themselves, they convince themselves that they look good and that way they feel comfortable, right? They're comfortable because it's like, I don't, I don't feel awkward. I don't feel like something is wrong because I've convinced myself that I look presentable. But they don't, and they're going to spend the rest of their day going around, and everyone's going to stare at them, and they're probably not going to get the job, right? So, so this is what St. James is saying. He's saying, if you look at yourself in the mirror, and you find that there is darkness, you find there is sin, you find there is wickedness, but you don't want to accept that, it makes you feel bad to, to see those things, right? So what you do is you turn away, and when you turn away, you forget what you actually just saw. So religion is about looking into the mirror and accepting and acknowledging what we see, 
right? And this is what Elijah here is saying. I will show you the truth, so now you have to believe it, and you have to accept it, and you have to live by it. And if what I show you is that God is the true God, you can no longer live your life the way you've been living it. You can no longer remain to be the priests of these gods that don't exist, right? You have to change. And this is the dangerous thing when you start speaking about the truth, is because the truth demands that you change yourself to conform to it, okay? The truth is not just about interest or or an academic exercise and philosophizing about what could be. No, once you realize what the truth is, you must alter yourself in order to conform to that truth, right? Because otherwise you are a fool, right? Anyone who knows the truth but explicitly does what is contrary to the truth is hurting themselves, whether it be religion or anything else in the world, right? You're, you're, you're a fool if you, if you don't conform yourself to what the truth is. When it comes to religion, though, and one of the attacks of the devil of on Christianity is that he's transformed religion from being the, the pursuit of truth to being the pursuit of comfort, right? So as long as I'm, I'm, I'm believing in something that makes me happy, makes me comfortable, it doesn't matter whether it's true. It doesn't matter whether it contradicts the scripture or not. It doesn't matter. All that matters is I find joy in it and I'm able to deal with my stress and I'm able to deal with my anxiety and I'm able to deal with these things. This is why you'll find in some churches there is such a big emphasis on people talking about their own feelings and their own life and their own experiences and their own like, I was in this difficult situation and this is what happened and made me feel this way. And through this experience, yes, I, I found God. I'm not saying that there's no value in that. I'm not saying that people don't really have emotional experiences with God and God reveals himself to us in very personal ways. But, it, but that cannot be the sole reason that I believe in God is because um, I was very uh, depressed and sad and then something happened and then I felt like God brought me like out of that. That can't be the only reason to believe. Like people can come out of that by taking drugs. Like people can come out of that in so many ways that has nothing to do with Christianity, with religion, with supernatural, divine, nothing. It can just, there's many reasons why our emotions vary from day to day and moment to moment. So maybe, yes, God leads us to him through some kind of very impactful personal experience, but that cannot be the foundation of my belief, right? It's something to maybe kickstart my belief, maybe something to, to get my attention, to get me to investigate, to get me to learn, to get me to, to consider, to get me to do something. But it, it can't be the reason why I am a Christian forever, right? There's the, the, it's, that's, a, that's like building your house on the sand, right? The day will come, well, you're going to have other things happen to you that are not great, and, and then you will question your whole belief system. It's like, well, where is God now? Why isn't he doing for me and saving me out of this the way that he did before? But to build our faith on the rock is to build it on the truth, right? And to learn the truth, to grow in truth. And this is exactly here what Elijah is, is presenting to the people. God is giving these people a very special um, opportunity to see the truth exactly, right? You know, many times we think, well, God, if you just present yourself just as you are in the supernatural way, then the whole world will believe, right? But that's completely not true because that, that that assumes that all human beings are just like completely reasonable and rational people, but we're not, right? So we will find ways to discredit, to discount, to forget, to ignore, to downplay, to minimize whatever it is that we see because instead of me conforming to the truth, I want it to conform to me. How can I fit what I'm observing into my own thought process into my own thinking into my own lifestyle because i want the path of least resistance right if i don't have to change i don't want to change okay so and we're going to see this definitely here and and what's about to happen then elijah said to the people so remember the first thing he did is he went up to mount carmel which is like the dwelling place of the gods according to them then elijah said to the people i alone am left a prophet of the lord but baal's prophets are 450 men therefore let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. Put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood. But put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Okay. So Elijah is going to now make like a standoff. Okay. 
and to prove who is right. This is again, Elijah is very bold. You know, you're putting your whole reputation on the line here, and you're not just your reputation, you're putting your life on the line, right? Because what he is saying is, I'm so confident that God is going to answer, right? that I'm willing to stake everything on it. Now, of course, we know that God already told Elijah that he was going to answer. So this is not to say that if we were in an equivalent situation, we should just go out there and, like, you know, we tell everyone, oh, God is going to send fire from heaven. You know, that's probably not going to work. Okay? But here, God already told Elijah to do this. Okay? And again, see how every step Elijah makes it harder for himself to make sure that no one can accuse him of cheating. So the first thing he did is he told them, you pick two bulls, you choose one of them for yourself, and I'll take the other one. So lest someone think that somehow he picked a certain animal that was favorable to himself, he says, no, you pick them, and I will take the one that you do not um, choose. Also, he wants to make sure that there is no way, right, um, that there will be any kind of human fire, right? So he's saying there will be no human fire. God is the one, whoever, whichever God is going to answer with fire. Now, What's curious here at the end is where, where you know, he's giving them this offer and, and they're saying it is well spoken. Like they have such confidence in themselves, right? There are many examples of um, false teachers and false religion where they know it's false. Like if you read the story of Bell and the Dragon and the deuterocanonical parts of Daniel, in that story there are these priests of, of, of this, this god, right, and and they they say they claim that this big um they, 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 this big statue is essentially eating food, but they're actually secretly going and eating the food and removing it from in front of the statue, claiming that the God is doing it. So these priests clearly know that they're a fraud. Like they know themselves to be a fraud. Okay? And 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 if you if, if you if you put them on the spot, which is what Daniel did in the end, right? They conceded. They said no. Like well, this was a fraud all along. Maybe I'm gaining money, I'm getting power, I'm getting whatever from it. But then you have another category of people that are truly deceived. They, they truly believe in what is a lie, right? And here for these people, these priests to say, yeah, we believe that our God is going to bring fire from heaven and do everything. It's like, have you ever seen them do this before? Like, is this something you're very confident about? They've placed their trust in something um, that is false. Now, keep in mind also that Baal, the god Baal, who is also known as Apollo like in the Greek theology, he was the god of fire. Okay, So it should be a very easy task for the god of fire to bring down fire. Okay, And again, Elijah is making it easy for them. He says, this is your god, this is his turf, this is where he lives, this is his power, his superpower is what fire? We're going to have them test out the superpower, which is fire. Okay. Also, we know that Elijah understood that, that the Lord, of course, can also consume with fire. In Leviticus 9, it says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So definitely God can do this, and the people have seen him consume with fire. So the thing that Elijah is asking God to do is not something completely unprecedented, okay? And this Baal is the god of fire. So they would attribute to Baal any fire, right? Like they would see a volcano. It's like, well, that's Baal. You know, he's using his fire, right? So, of course, you know, if you think that Baal is making volcanoes and fire and all kinds of things, then, of course, Baal can burn things up with fire, okay? So they are very comfortable right now that they are definitely going to win the standoff. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning, till till, uh, from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. Okay, so they started by just making requests to Baal, Nothing happened. There was no fire. They didn't hear any voice. So they wanted to get Baal's attention. They started doing like a dance. They started leaping up and down, trying to get the attention of Baal. But again, nothing happened. Okay, They were attempting with human effort to help their God to do what it is that they needed to be done. Okay, And to be honest, this is something that we do with God. We try with our human effort. When God doesn't immediately give us what we like, we try to help him along. 
right? We try to push him in the right direction so that he would give us what we want. And when things don't go as fast as we want, we try to make things happen maybe a little faster, right, in the direction that we want. But to truly submit to the will of God, meaning that you are saying God is God is the one who has a will, and his will is what will reign. Meaning, God, if you want to bring down fire, this is your business, right? This is this is this is this is you. Don't don't try. It reminds me of this story. Um, I think Abuna Abshoil and Tony, the monk, he 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 said the story one time. I don't know if I shared it with you before, but he was saying the story about how one of the monks in the monastery, his cell um, caught on fire, and it was burning down, right? And then some of the other monks came, and they wanted to try to put out the fire with the with water and the the owner of the cell the the, the cell the, the monk who lived in that cell he stopped them he said no no and uh, he said if god wants to burn down his monastery let it be burned you know and the fire stopped right again not to say that if this happens if you see a fire please put it out um <laughs> but the the point of this and the faith that this monk had is let everything be done by the will of god now definitely there are times where we have agency. Like God doesn't just sit back and say, I'll do everything, you guys just watch. No, no. I mean, he, he wants us to work. But in this case, what is it that they're asking him to do? They're asking him to do something or they're trying to push him to do something that they cannot do, right? It's not like they could have done something in this point from any kind of human perspective to make it happen, to achieve their goal. At this point, it's completely a test for God's power, Okay, are you going to act? Or are you not going to act? Okay, so it's up to him to decide. Are you going to act or not? So again, with us, there are some things where, yes, we, we've done all that we can. And at that point, once we've done all we can in, in whatever area we're talking about, whatever problem or whatever situation, there's no point in feeling any anxiety at this point. Like maybe this is easier said than done. But truly, um, whenever... Whenever the scripture speaks about, like when St. Paul speaks to the Philippians about having the, the, the peace that, that surpasses all understanding, what is he saying? He's saying, you've done your part, right? So just relax, right? Even if everything around you looks like it's on fire, everything, if everything around you is getting all messed up, have you done all that you can? You've done all you can. So leave the rest of God to deal with it in his way and his timing. Because even being stressed and anxious and doubting and, and even like to the point of losing our health this is like our human attempt to like do something and we have nothing to do. It's kind of like you, 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 you want to fix something, but you have no tools to fix it. It's just you're asking God to fix it, okay? And you want to fix it, but you have no way of fixing it beyond asking God to fix. So in that moment, because we are kind of impatient and maybe not as faithful as we should be, we find ourselves losing uh, our, our patience, becoming anxious, worrying, uh, even to the point of losing our health, because we don't believe, right? Whereas saying, if we believe truly that God is in control, right, and we've done what we can, there's no point in me fretting about it. There's no point in me being afraid or, or nervous even about it. And this is where we are trying to reach. You know, maybe we can't say that we are there yet, but we want to reach there, and that should be the goal. The goal should be that we leave everything up to the will of God. Just like this monk who's seeing this, this, this fire, and he says, well, I have no way of fixing it. I have no way of dealing with it. God, you deal with it, and in the meantime, I'm at ease, right? I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with whatever the outcome is. Yes. The, the line between doing your part and going beyond and trying to do God's part. I mean, definitely this is going to depend on each situation. But I would say that usually, um, well, two things. If you find yourself doing something while you are anxious about it, then there's something wrong. So even if you're doing what you see as being your part, so like, for instance, like I'm, I'm studying for a test. This is my part. Um, but even as I'm studying, I'm very, very anxious. Maybe my efforts are not going to be enough. Well, maybe that's reflecting a lack of faith. Well, no, your efforts are not enough. God is going to be with you and help you. And whatever's outcome will be the will of God. So you focus on, 
yeah, I'm going to do my part. Now, different people might have different definitions of what is my part, right? Like one person might say, you know what, I'm going to study for eight hours a day for two months. Another person would be like, you know, maybe not. I'm going to study for maybe a few days beforehand for a few hours each. It's you, I can't define like what is considered enough. But in the heart of each person, the God will say to each one, like, like this is this is like, like our conscience is not pricking us about it. I feel like I have done, and I'm confident that I've done what I can. Now, in the end, the outcome is going to depend on other factors, not just on my work. But at least I feel that I've given all that I can. But my anxiety should not be about the outcome, because in the end, the outcome is based on not just my effort, but based on what God, how God works and how God helps me in that exam or w whatever it might be. But again, it's, it's very um, specific to the situation to the extent. But each of us kind of has a sense in whatever context it is when we feel like I have, I have done a good amount of work, like I've, I've given my best, I've given my all, I've given as much as I can give. Does that mean I couldn't have studied one hour more? Yeah, you probably could have studied one hour more, but I feel like I've done a good amount, a significant amount that should, by all measures, allow me to have success. But in the end, I trust that God is going to bring the success. And if he doesn't, if in the end the outcome is not what I expected, then I'm not blaming myself for that. Because like I've done my part. If God didn't want me to succeed in this for whatever reason, then maybe that's his will. Maybe that's something good for me, however way. So one of the key things is not to be nervous as we work, right? Have confidence that the outcome, which is the joint effort between God and us, the outcome will be right. And that brings a lot of peace in a lot of things that we do. We don't have to reevaluate at the end afterward and ask us ourselves a million questions like what if I would have done this and what about that and what about this no maybe I'm just comfortable with whatever the outcome was and and whatever it is that the, I'm going to learn from this God is going to teach me something from this and I'll move on okay and so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them so it said it said that they were from what from morning even till noon. So all of the morning until noon. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So he's teasing them. Okay? He's teasing them and saying, uh, Maybe he's just, he's distracted. You, you have to get his attention. All right? Maybe he is sleeping. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until blood gushed out on them. So they are actually physically cutting themselves now to get the attention of Baal. Remember, th these people, like, they would offer human sacrifices and all kinds of things like that. So the fact that they are, like, cutting themselves, this was um, not something uncommon. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice no one answered, no one paid attention. So by this time until the evening, so this was maybe around eight or nine hours now. Can you imagine you're sitting around for eight or nine hours, you're asking Baal to bring the fire, you're jumping up and down, you're cutting yourselves, you're, you're, you're being mocked by Elijah, okay? So all of this stuff is happening. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So, yes. I think it just it it just means that they're like calling upon their God. I don't, it's not it's not a prophecy in the sense of like telling the future, but yeah. Then Elijah said to all the people, "Come near to me." So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. So this this altar that's here, um, it was previously an altar. It had been broken down and fallen into disrepair. Was destroyed. So it was previously used, right? So one of the things that 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 was being done at this time and that Jezebel was doing is she was destroying all the places of worship for God, right? So this could have been an altar that was previously used in worship um, but had been destroyed. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. He's going to take these 12 stones. And the thing that's, that's this number 12 is actually a very significant number. 
we see this number 12 repeated again and again and again in Scripture. So we know that the number of 12 was referring to the number of tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. It was the number of the stones on the breastplate of the priest, ephod, that represented one stone for each of the tribes of Israel. So here, he, by using the number 12, he is bringing to remembrance the unity of Israel, right? Remember, at this time, the northern kingdom had how many tribes? Ten tribes. And the, the, the southern kingdom had two tribes. So, so there is a division in Israel. There is a division in the children of God. By bringing back the idea of the 12 stones, he is saying what? There is unity. We as Israel, all of us as Israel, as one people, are all the children of God. We are all worshiping, um, should be worshiping the same um, the same God. Also on the, 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 the garments of the priest, there used to be 12 bells as well. Um, and, and, and this 12 bells would be like, like making noise wherever he goes. It is like a, it is a testimony for the priesthood. It's a testimony for the sacrifices that are made to God. Moses also, on Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, he had set up 12 pillars, each of those pillars representing one of the tribes of Israel. Joshua, when he crossed the Jordan River, he set up 12 stones. Um, the Lord, of course, we know he chose 12 disciples. Um, the, the, the book of Revelation says that the city of the heavenly Jerusalem in heaven has 12 gates, right? So this number 12 was repeated again and again and again, which is really representing all of the believers, right? Um, so, so here, this 12 is representing all of the people of God who are now going to be like participating in this sacrifice. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. Okay, so he built the altar with stones. He took the previously broken down altar. He fixed it up and put these stones. He made a trench all the way around it. Um, a sea of seed is about three gallons. Okay. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Why is he doing this? Hmm? To make it even harder. And to prove that there is no way he could have manipulated this to make the, the fire like, like man-made fire, right? Everything is completely soaked with water. Even if you tried to light it on fire with like uh, matches, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't burn. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear, hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. If you think about what is it that Elijah is saying, his prayer to God, number one, it's a very simple prayer, and two, it's a rational prayer, meaning he is speaking to a rational person. He is giving a reason why God should do this um, to bring the people back to you again, right? He didn't have to do strange rituals to get the attention of God. God even knew what was in his heart, even if he hadn't said the words, right? God would have known what is in his heart. But he is saying this so that we can all hear it and see what is it that, that he is asking God to do. He spoke to him with reason and he spoke to him with reverence, right? And he, and he says what? You are the Lord God, right? He's asking him to do this for the sake of his people, which everything that the Lord is doing is for the sake of his people. Even the drought is for the sake of his people. God is not bringing drought because he wants the people to suffer. Yes, they need to suffer, but the suffering should, for, should result in repentance and to bring them back again. So after this period of the three, three years that the drought has been going on, now it is the time for the people to return to God, according to God. Remember, God is the one who told Elijah, now it's time to go back to Ahab and to end the drought. Okay, so, so here, Elijah is fulfilling and satisfying everything that God had asked him to do. He is not coming on his own. 
Elijah here is not trying to make a show. He's not trying to say, you know what, I, I, I want people to know who I am. I'm the great prophet Elijah. Actually, for the last three years, he was nowhere to be found, right? He was invisible. He did not, he did not come because he wanted to demonstrate his own power or his own influence on God or anything. He waited until God said, okay, now go. So he went. And he's doing everything according to God's command and his timing. So after he prayed, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Like the fire, first of all, it came from above, right? So it was clear that the fire is coming from, from above, not from below. So this was not the work of man. This was the work of God. And it was so intense that it burnt not only the wood, but it even the stones, it burnt, right? It burnt everything. And of course, all of the water, everything was consumed. The burnt sacrifice was consumed. Now, who is there seeing this? Everyone, right? All the priests of Baal, all the people, they are all observing this, right? And what is it that happened? Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now, again, this was the purpose. The purpose was to bring the hearts of the people back to God. And everyone who was watching this should now, as to what we were saying earlier, that if the purpose of our religion is to know the truth and to believe in what is objectively true, if that is truly the purpose, then all the people, the king, the queen, everyone who, if they sincerely had doubts about who God was, should now believe that the God of Elijah is the true God, and not the God of the Baals, right? Not the God of the priests of Baal. The Baal is not a God. He, he could not do what is it that God had done. So here, everyone is proclaiming, in this moment at least, he's saying he is God, he is God. This shows how, because we know in the end, like <laughs> this isn't going to be a moment of, of long-term transformation. Like This is going to be a moment where, yes, the people are, are believing, okay? The people who are there. But this, is, this isn't going to change the heart of Ahab. This isn't going to change the heart of Jezebel. Because again, however it is that they would rationalize it to themselves and incorporate it into their own kind of be belief system. But for them to say, well, now because this has happened, I will submit my will to God. Mm, that's a harder thing. This is like when people come in confession and they say, here are my sins. But I promise I'm never going to do them again. Really? Is it because of your will that you have decided that you will never do them again? Is, is the reason that you fall into sin because it's just a simple matter of a choice? Or is there a weakness? And in the moments of weakness, you fall into something that you do not desire, something you did not intend, something you did not want. But you find yourself falling into it, right, against your will. This is even what... St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, there is, a, uh, there is a law of sin working in my members contrary to my mind, contrary to the spirit. There is, there is a war inside of me, and that war, sometimes I win and sometimes I lose. Okay? So, so here even, and this is the, by far not the first time that this has happened, where the people proclaim with one voice, reverence to God, worship of God, all these things, right? But then very, very soon they forget. Very, very soon, they fall into the same negative patterns that they had before, like the book of Judges is a perfect example of this pattern again and again and again. So here, yes, the people are saying, the Lord, he is God. Okay, so what's going to happen now? Now that you say the Lord, he is God, what does that look like for you? Is the Lord, he is God, is this a life-changing declaration of faith? Or is this just simply how I feel in the moment? We just saw fire come from heaven and burn, you know, a sacrifice, I think anyone standing around that would just be like very emotional at that point. Like, what is it that just happened? You know? And there would be people who are like very, very like, I'm ready to I'm ready to give up everything for that. Right? But how long does that feeling last? Does that feeling last for the rest of your life? And is it accompanied with a commitment rather than just a feeling? And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Those priests were executed so that they would no longer spread this false religion, pagan worship in Israel. 
Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Right? So he's saying what? It's not that in that moment there was the sound of rain, but he's saying now God is going to um, he's going to end the drought. So go and, 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 and rejoice because the drought is about to end. Again, Elijah had faith and believed that this meant that God was going to end the drought. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of, of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, uh, and looked and, and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud, as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. So immediately, not just the fire, but the, 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 the rain that had not occurred for the last three years, suddenly there is rain. So much rain, heavy rain, right, that it was going to prevent him from traveling. Okay, so Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So you can see here on the map, where is Mount Carmel and where is Jezreel? Okay. Um, okay. Um, this is, I think, a good stopping point before we get to the next chapter, 19. Um, again, this is just as a, as a review here. Um, but uh, God willing, next time um, we'll see what happens to Elijah next um, because it might not be what everyone expects. Um, when we see what happens to Elijah. Any final questions or comments before we conclude? Okay. You can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, and we ask, O Lord, that you share with us the spirit of Elijah the prophet, his boldness, his faith, his reverence, his obedience, and submission to your will. We ask, O God, that you protect us from sin, from distraction, from all kinds of wickedness, and you help us to remain focused, O Lord, on you, and that during this time of the great fast, we put aside all things, O Lord, that are distractions to us, so that we no longer allow them to be a barrier between us and you, but focus our time and our energy and everything, O Lord, on your worship, on your will, on serving you and in serving your people. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. Peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.